wanted to start off by just uh, sort of getting into, uh, I guess, before we get into like your vocal stuff and everything, I just wanted to know if you drink coffee, um, if you can tell me a little bit about your coffee habits, uh, if you do, or if there's any sort of drink you feel committed to. <laughs> I love this podcast already. Thank you for having me. Yes, I drink coffee. I love coffee. And um, my friend Lori Antonioli, a wonderful singer from San Francisco, sent me the entire rig to make really good filter coffee with the right pot, to, you know, the right cone filter shape and uh, a a coffee grinder um, that makes that grinds the coffee just before you uh, use it. So it is, I, it's my morning ritual and I love coffee. Awesome. Do you drink it black or with uh, any sort of cream or sugar? Well, or it depends on the, the grind. And usually I put a little bit of milk in it, but I've come to sort of do less and less of that because the coffee I'm now buying because of this grinder I have, um, is really, really good. So actually I can drink it without milk. And that awesome. is, is my favorite thing to do <laughs> when I have a good grind. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a coffee professional by day, but uh, you know, I yeah, I guess I was sort of intuiting or trying to intuit what your coffee preferences would be. And uh, I, I sort of was wondering also like, you know, if being a vocalist, if you have to consider anything additionally, like, uh, like if coffee affects, uh, you know, yeah. Well, if you're recording, if you're recording in a studio with a very sensitive, good mic, coffee dries out your throat. It's no, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a diuretic. And so you hear these sounds. I'm going to go very close to the mic now. When you're singing, and that's really annoying <laughs> right. to take those little clicks out. Um, so it's best not to drink coffee right before not that I adhere to this rule. But... <laughs> awesome. um, do you do you drink tea at all as well, or are you just all uh, coffee? <laughs> cool. Tea to me is just brown water. Like I don't feel like there's anything in it. Um, I have really good uh, what's it called builders tea from Ireland, um, and it's very flavorful. But I never feel like it's the same satisfaction, you know, mm -hmm. that I get from coffee. And again, the ritual is a big part of it for me. Like, you know, I used to get into espressos and make espressos on the stovetop, but the pour over thing now, oh, it's the best and it has the most caffeine. So, well, I'm glad that we're very much on the same page here. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, we can move on from coffee. Uh, let's talk about some uh, music stuff. I, you know, I was thinking of how to introduce you and to say a vocalist just seems like it doesn't get the point across at all. And uh, I know that you, you know, you are uh, an accomplished ice skater and that uh, you know, Ben tells me that you are into visual arts. And I'm curious if there's a sort of way that you integrate these different domains into like a sort of compressed sense of self or like if it's just you do what you do or is there any sort of way that you organize that in your mind? So I think the tree trunk of my artistic, I hate the word artist to begin with, mm -hmm. my uh, sort of output here is, is through my voice. And then all the other... Uh, sort of byways and and ramps can lead to different places like my uh, my visual artwork or movement or performance art or composition or uh, improvisation or whatever you know is is on the side of that but for mainly it's through my voice that I uh, express myself and so 
I sometimes get into these sort of uh, zones of mainly doing artwork for, you know, a couple of weeks or, or a month or two or so. But I always come back to singing and music is basically where I'm at. Um, what I like about venturing out is that they can influence each other. So my artwork has greatly influenced my compositional understanding and what works and what doesn't and what I like and sort of reflects back on itself. And I think that the visual arts sometimes have an advantage uh, of not having to deal with time, with the mm. element of time and people sitting there, <laughs> except for, you know, performance art perhaps or uh, sound art. But uh, if you could, you know, you can close your eyes and walk away if you don't like a painting. But if you're in a concert, you sit there and you just have to deal with the fact that you went there and you, mm -hmm. you know, you have to leave this hall now and you paid all this money to sit there and all this stuff. So it, it's a different, uh, you can take different risks when you're visually uh, expressing yourself. Interesting. And, and you apply different principles. And so I'm trying to cross discipline. Uh, and, and learn from uh, in the d different disciplines, the same with, with uh, dance or with ice skating, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's sort of my, the long answer. Uh, so the uh, that's interesting that you mentioned time in that way. That's uh, I was going to ask something very much in that language. And so I'm glad that you beat me to it. Um, uh, do you think about space in the same way? Like, you know, with movement, like you're dealing with a whole other range of space and, you know, uh, with music, uh, it's you know almost just like a bi-directional thing or like a you know, uh, you know just two ears you don't have the same sense of space do you think about that the same way yeah i think uh, definitely i mean for me music is very visual so oftentimes i especially uh when we, we're not dealing with lyrics or emotional content that's directly from you know me but more abstract ideas um, of music making and so i always see shapes and colors and it's not synesthetic necessarily but there's a very strong connection uh, for me with visual ideas. The way I memorize is visually, photographically. Mm. Um, so yeah, for me, that's it's an architecture. It's, it's a depth perception also, like something is could have a sense of flatness or could be very, very deep and sort of go three-dimensional in how I perceive sound or uh, compositions at a certain place. It, yeah, it is very visual. Um, before, I mean, before we really dive into too much music stuff, I just have to sort of ask a little bit about ice skating. Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles and it, it seems exotic to me and sort of, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just curious if that's something that you have to like maintain your chops with, or if, uh, you just feel like they're always there. Do you like, uh, how, how's that been to your life? Currently? It's not always there at all. It's actually, uh, you lose it very, very quickly because unlike dance, you don't, move over ice <laughs> for some reason, these weird shoes that have blades on the bottom which are sharp as a knife by mm -hmm. the way um and so you're just you're basically learning how to walk first and then you can dance on the blades but first you really have to be able to skate very effortlessly and i remember one skating session when i was maybe 16 or 17 and it was 6 30 in the morning we always had these brutally early skating times and it, um, I remember suddenly, for the first time after years and years of skating, suddenly feeling, oh, I'm actually skating. Like, I'm not thinking about skating. I'm just skating. So this idea of the, the effortlessness takes much longer because when you're, when you're dancing, 
whenever you start dancing, whether it's at the age of two or three, you've already walked. Mm -hmm. But when you start skating, unless you grew up on, you know, skates every day, which is highly unlikely, you you have to take, spend a lot of time on the ice, making that feel natural and just effortless. And so that was really the revelation I had. I suddenly it's like, oh my God, finally. It doesn't feel like I'm doing something really unnatural, which it is, it's completely bizarre. <laughs> um, it, skates were invented for transportation in Holland, um, skating through the canals in the winter. And they used you know, uh, animal bone under their shoes. And um, so it was for transportation, it wasn't really for artistic expression or dance or any of that. So it's a super artificial set. Like it's, it's exotic, as you said. Mm -hmm. Like you think if an alien came down and would lift the, the roof of a skating rink, like what, uh, when they <laughs> built this ice in this shape? Why this shape? Why two people or one person only on this big thing? Or a whole bunch of people and it's a whole mess and you can't do anything. What is this? It's completely strange. Yeah, that, that does seem unnatural. But uh, do you do you uh, still maintain your practice today? Like, do you do you? Yeah, to... I, I did a, a performance of the of Schubert's um, uh, Winter's Journey, which I renamed Winter Eyes, which in German is Die Winterreise. So I thought Winter Eyes was actually how Americans pronounce it anyway. Die Winterreise. And it sounds like winter ice. And so I did <clears throat> a version of it with Uri Kane um, and the Ice Theater of New York. Um, and we got uh, National Sawdust, which is a performance space in Williamsburg, to agree to let us set up a, uh, a synthetic patch of ice for the audience. Um, it's a small, very, very small patch, um, maybe 15 feet by 10 or something, not very... Now it's maybe more, 25 feet, let's say. Um, and so we, and I created, recreated this uh, song cycle uh, with two other skaters and I had to get my chops back up. I think this was 2018 or 2017, something like that. Anyway, so I went to the Ice Theater of New York, which um, was the umbrella organization for this event, getting the synthetic ice to to National Sardis and all that. So I started training again and I realized, first of all, how rusty I was and how much I can't do. But then it came back very, very quickly and it was so fun and it was so joyous. Awesome. Um, and I realized that a lot of my, my music and my sort of um, ideas come from the, you know, sort of perpetual motion that you get when you skate, which is round edges. There's no hard stops unless you actually stop. Um, but once you're in motion, you just want to keep that motion going and going and going. And so that's sort of something that I've noticed in my uh, in my own work, that is sort of a sense of perpetual motion with soft edges around it. <laughs> um, the last guest I spoke to was uh, the composer John Link, who we talked a lot about uh, the music of Elliot Carter. And um, I was interested that so much of Carter's music was about continuity, which this sort of reminds me of. And so, um, yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, well, I have things to get through here uh, to ask you some, let's uh, talk here about some vocal stuff. I'm sort of curious, like, you know, the vocal instrument is like the only biological instrument that I really know of, like in terms of having material that's biological and stuff like, you know, steel and wood and stuff. 
is this something that you think about or like uh does that do you feel like that makes you uh, vocals distinct in some way i always have this issue with people saying oh the voice is the first instrument like what does that does that make it better or are we there for what um so usually the point is well so if if that's the first instrument then it, it, it maybe it's not you know that doesn't mean anything to me like what are you playing on that instrument what are you doing with that instrument so you, you could be you know amazing on a piano and really crabby at singing and then that doesn't make you better because it's the first instrument right. um so here's my take on it i was i always felt very connected to my body and very connected therefore to my voice being part of my body it's only been through years and decades of teaching that I've noticed that that's not automatic for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. For a lot of singers, singing is something that takes place in their throat, not in their entire body. Um, and that's something that I've started to work with uh, in my students and sort of be more aware of in myself that singing, even some of it is highly complex and highly um, difficult to execute that it still needs to be coming from your body, right? And so jazz singing or, or whatever you want to call it, creative contemporary music has become so challenging in its parameters that oftentimes that connection falls behind. And I think that, that dance and movement can really uh, connect your body to an expressive, uh, to, a, to a way of expressing yourself. Um, and connect your voice to that as well, if you, you know, through certain exercises. And um, so for me, it's always been sort of automatic and only because I'm seeing in my students that, wait, no, they're having, they're struggling with that. And that's not a given. And especially now with us sitting in front of computers and in front of screens all day, that sort of idea of not being embodied is even more, more prevalent. Mm -hmm. Um and I mean, I guess like uh, the way that the ear and the vocals connect, um, that seems like another sort of level of embodiment. Uh, but how, how do you sort of like uh, think about that as one unit? Like the ears, the, the throat, uh, the mind? I think, they're, I think they're all, they have to work in tandem. And sometimes one thing is, becomes more important than the other. Sometimes you have to think more. Sometimes you have to feel more. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. It's just... Um, I think that I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid that we're losing this connection and not minding it. I think that technology is changing us in ways that we don't predict and can't predict and don't even know that we're being changed. Mm -hmm. It's like sort of a sleight of hand. We're really into, you know, uh, hooking up through apps and all of a sudden we don't need to hook up anymore because, you know, watching porn is enough. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly you lose the human connection completely. I'm using sex as a very cheap example here, but I think this a case could be made for watch out what you wish for. Watch out for all these podcasts uh, or if not podcasts for these uh, virtual concerts. We might not miss live performing that much. We don't know that where everybody says, Oh, we're going to go back. I want to hear live concert. Yeah, maybe once or twice, but then you might think, you know, I'm not going to go out and drive for an hour and a half through LA traffic to hear this when it's being virtually broadcast into my phone. 
yeah, you know, so we, we gotta be a little careful <laughs> with, with our body and with our, with our minds here dealing with this technology. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was going to ask this sort of more in the middle, but, uh, you sort of are getting at it uh, already with the embodiment and sort of like, uh, the sexual reference. Um, you know, I, I know that you're a big fan of the music of Kate Bush and, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, the song Cloud Busting is just probably my favorite. And that's about, uh, you know, this like technology from Wilhelm Reich. And I'm curious if that, like if Reich uh, or Reich, whoever you, have, however you want to pronounce it, if, uh, you know, that sort of world of semi-occult uh, stuff is interesting to you or if you, you know, have any investments in that. <laughs> I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a part of QAnon. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, what what was interesting about club busting is that you take a pop artist like Kate Bush, and then you sort of strip away the layers of sophistication and and re, and source material. And to me, that's more exciting uh, than anything. Like somebody who creates, you know, this sort of pop world and pop persona, but uses literary references and psychology and these. I mean, there's so much in that song as is in Hello Earth or in Wuthering Heights or, you know, you name it. Like mm -hmm. her, her material is very interesting and it only goes, gets deeper with more study and with more uh, spending time with it, which is not always the case with pop music. Sometimes you have something you think is so wonderful and you spend time with it and it sort of fizzles away and you're just like, you know what, there's not that much there for that long, you know, a time. And that's fine, you know, it's, it's okay. But um, with Kate Bush, it was very, very different. And that was an, a, an interesting discovery because I didn't know when I started uh, my Kate Bush sort of uh, project that that would actually happen. I thought, well, it's, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna write some arrangements and then would be done with it, but I, I, I'm not done with it. <laughs> Uh, in doing a, a record of all Kate Bush music, uh, I guess, like, what does that sort of like preparation and like research look like uh, in, you know, getting to know the music more and more? Yeah, I mean, I grew up with her music. I knew her records very, very well, inside and out, really uh, sort of was embodied. Her music mm -hmm. was embodied. I mean, th those were the records that I sat down and listened to, not just you know, had them play in the background. I sat down and listened to every little nuance of everything um, over and over and over again because <laughs> there was no internet. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a little town. There was nothing happening. What do you do? You lay on your shag carpet and you listen to music with your headphones. Um, so the preparation for that was uh, reading her biographies and finding as much material online research material and reading her lyrics and just diving into what all these references are about and um, doing as much as I can. The, the, the fun thing about Kate Bush is that she's quite the recluse. We all know that. Um, and so there is a certain manageability. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she, is, she wasn't Picasso, like painted millions of paintings and shards and, you know, this and that. Um, she's, you know, she was prolific enough so that you have a big catalog but not like 3,000 songs and you know 100 million interviews it's very manageable mm -hmm. <laughs> my size it's for the lazy person do you feel like you did most of the heavy lifting just uh in you know like growing up with her music and uh you know having just embodied it already maybe I don't know I <laughs> 
I think the heavy, there's no heavy lifting when you love something so much that it's really pure joy. So there was no lifting. It was just, oh, this is so fun and wow. There's a little bit of, of this um, underdog love that I have. I, I'm always sort of uh, attracted by those that get left out um, or are overlooked or are not the most popular girl in the school. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Kate Bush, that was certainly true because she, she had a lot of pushback. She works on her own schedule. She does not is not uh, swayed by commerce or popularity or any of that, and that's interesting to me as a pop artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was that was part of the appeal for me as well. Cool. Um, so I I guess I uh, you know I. I'm most familiar with your duo uh, with Ben Maunder, probably like, and to the extent that like, I, I am pretty sure that some of those like uh, lines that you sing together uh, or that you sing along with him uh, in Oceana and all that um, is pretty much ingrained in my head from just listening to it so many times. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, if you can tell me just about that duo project and sort of the origin of it, uh, how you met Ben um, any sort of like interesting anecdotes from your time playing together? Um, so I met Ben in 93, I think. Um, I heard him at the old knitting factory in Pat Zimmerly's group. Um, and I heard his sound and I was like, this is this is the guy I want to work with. And so I called him up. I had a, um, a little gig at Cornelia Street Cafe, which no longer exists, unfortunately. And... Um, I had called Ben and I didn't hear back from him. And this was before cell phones and all that stuff. So I waited a week and then I was just about to call somebody else because I needed to make a decision on this gig. And he called me back, thank God. So I didn't need to call my second, you know, choice. And uh, we got together and there was instant chemistry in our playing. Like we, there was understanding, there was, a, a sort of a friendly understanding. I we could do this, we could do that. It was very, it felt very loose and very free, and um, yeah. So we started to uh, work in just in duo for a while, and I had this regular gig at Cornelia Street Cafe where it allowed me to play every Monday, every first Monday, or was it every Monday? I forgot. It's like some kind of not mm-hmm. Monday. Monday is big bad night, but Tuesdays or some off night first set you know so we could develop some material we would get a little bit of an audience and over the years we, i started to invite and we started to invite each other into each other's other projects um so whenever i i can and whenever it makes sense uh, ben is of course my first choice um, and we've done a lot of traveling there's a lot of history and a, and a lot of friendship and it takes um takes a long time to develop something you know as close-knit and as as free and as easy um but it started right in the first rehearsal that that i know i remember us playing a norwegian word i think it was even you know which we still have it in our repertoire uh, sometimes and it was just so easy and so great you know mm-hmm. i didn't have to say okay here we switch to this drone and then we do this and i mean that and maybe we could do this it was completely clear um, so that kind of synergy is what's there. And, you know, for I think it was Oceana. Uh, I had just had a car accident and I could not see mm-hmm. very well. I was at first, I was blind and then I sort of regained some vision. Interesting. Wow. Um, 
And Ben had uh, asked me to record this music with him. And I said, Ben, I can't do this. I cannot record this music right now. It's too much. I'm overwhelmed with even recovery from this uh, accident, which we were both in. He, you know, we were both in this. Uh, he was driving and it was a, a deer jumped in front of the car after a duo gig in Rochester. Um, and he sort of tried to find somebody else. Like he found a um, male alto, but that didn't work for him. And then, you know, months went by and months went by. And then I finally just like, okay, I'll do these two songs or three songs, whatever. And it became more and more. And it was, it was the, the knowledge that he knew that I would sound best on this. I'm sorry. Um, that also helped me, pushed me into really doing my best and, and doing something that I sort of was like, oh my God, I can't learn all these notes right now. I'm just too, and then it was really fun and became this really fun thing where we, I sent him these files and then he was like, yeah, but try this vowel and that, you know, with this thing and let's, let's double track everything. So I sang everything twice um, so that it, you know, sounds thicker in the, in the mix and so forth and so forth. So it was a, a true collaboration in that sense. Um, and also I'm very grateful for Ben in this instance that he just insisted that I, <laughs> I sang it. Um, so that was nice. Can you speak a little bit more about what these files that you're exchanging were? Well, I was recording um, at home because he had already recorded the the the, the, uh, the tracks with the band, and I think he was re had also recorded some of the solos, um, and so I was singing some of the melodies that he had uh, written, not some, all of the melodies that he had written for me, um, and then sent them to him, and then we were like. He's like, you know what? Let's try let fewer consonants on this, or this sounds. It's like, yeah, it sounds kind of hokey there with a da 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 da. So we were sort of, for the most part, it was fine. I tried different, you know. Sometimes if you sing on the lower notes, you know, you don't get as much attack, and you you just don't really feel the rhythmic articulation sometimes. So he would, we would change that. He said, could, is there any way we could get more articulation on this phrase or I don't feel really feel the counter rhythm to this. So it's a lot of fiddling around and trying what works best in the moment because we really had no idea. My idea was to, my, I insisted, or I really felt strongly about uh, double tracking everything because the voice by itself uh, unless you have this like metallic like bullet stream of a voice, which I don't have, it sounds often just too spread. You know, it sounds like a French horn, but it's, it's, mm. is this a melody? Are we supposed to listen to this? Is this just somebody improvising, you know, random notes in the background? What is this? So for it to be quite aggressively pointed required for me to uh, track everything twice. And that was good. I liked it. You know, it sort of also dehumanizes me a little bit, makes me a, a little bit more of a choir in a way, but not really because it's only two people, but it's the same person. So it's a special sound that you can't get from just one person singing. One person singing is too, almost too emotionally like drawn, like, oh, there's this person mm -hmm. I have to listen to now. Whereas two people or more, a choir, and you hear this in soundtracking uh, a lot in, uh, movies but if there's just you know a, a blend of voices 
it becomes the ear becomes less drawn to only that voice this makes sense obviously because you're not telling an emotional story here you're actually just you know becoming not an instrument i don't want to say it like that but mm -hmm. you're blending more with something that is more abstract gotcha interesting um i i guess i didn't even have a sense that those were doubled or that there was like any sort of back and forth or I, I didn't think about the process in general, but um, uh, how, how difficult would you say Ben's music or like that, those sort of projects were compared to anything else that you do? Like, is that even challenging to you or um, is it particularly challenging? <laughs> it's challenging to okay. me. Good. Um, it it's super hard on the page when you're just rehearsing it by yourself you're like what the fuck this is like a 12 tone melody out in ether with you know these weird rhythmic changes and then actually when you're doing it with the music it suddenly wait that's not that hard it all falls into place and it all makes sense because ben is such a great composer mm -hmm. you know the, the the mosaic of these weird random pitches suddenly are not random anymore and they're supported by this note or that note um so yeah it that was it's good that way rather than, oh, this is easy. And then you start recording. It's like, wait a minute, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a nice process. I'd done a project uh, with Mark Dresser, bass player, and Dave Douglas and some other New York players in the 90s that was possibly sort of setting my, my meter to this kind of complexity um, with tons of metric modulations, completely atonal, uh, rhythmically, absolutely weird kind of music that until then till 94 i sort of it was either free jazz or kind of modern jazz kind of aesthetic and mm -hmm. sung weber or schoenberg but that never in this rhythmic precision uh had i dealt with atonality <clears throat> and so that was that was uh it's a mountain you know it's always a mountain especially when you're dealing with overdubs of a choir and some of it is so far at the edge of your range that you can only do so many run-throughs of it until you're like, okay, I'm tired now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's on the edge, you know, and that's, and once it's recorded, it's easy. That's always my experience. Once a thing is recorded, you're like, ah, it's not that hard. <laughs> when, you, when it's just a page, you're like, what? I'm, I'm glad to know that you are indeed human. Uh, uh, so I'm curious uh, with like, just rehearsing that type of stuff and just like all the challenging music that you do like uh you know like what is like the theo blackman woodshed like uh like how I, I guess like what sort of uh like practice routines have you done to like uh get yeah. through this i mean that depends on the music and what mm -hmm. what so the the greatest one of the many great things that john holmbeck once said in a massive class that i was uh witnessing he said practice what you don't know Mm. so it you know for, for especially when something is hard you want to practice the stuff that you already know and it makes you feel good and you're like yeah i know this kind of um so i try to really shed the stuff i don't know and then i try to analyze why i can't do something whether it's <clears throat> the combination of interval and rhythmic uh complexity or whatever and try to shed them separately and see what you know what's what um it really really helps to understand composition and compositional process and <clears throat> oftentimes you realize as the interpreter 
that oh there is this is the same building block this is the same you know figure except it's inverted or something to me that makes it easier i don't feel like it's just random randomness to me is is the hardest mm-hmm. um but when there's compositional structure i sort of feel ah okay here we are again this is this, this is that la 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 order is order in the village um <clears throat> so what does my shed look like it's very empty in that <laughs> shed i should say um i'm very lazy so i don't i don't shed very much but um it's usually if if something is so complex that i can't sit there and hammer it out for you know 10,000 repeats i often put it into a, a loop on my uh, on my recording and just let it play and wash over me sometimes until i find myself singing along automatically and that was uh, i started that sort of idea when i started working with mark dresser in 94 because that music was just i'm telling you that music was so rangy mm-hmm. and so out there and because um Mark Dresser was in Braxton's band for 20 years. The whole octave displacement thing was really prevalent and I was like, "What?" <clears throat> and so I had made a cassette tape that I had on like on my head for, for most of, you know, my time uh for 3 months um to just learn these, you know, weird mel- melodic things and f- and feel them to be embodied and feel them like I'm singing something, not just a machine hammering mm-hmm. out pitches. That's interesting. I uh I I'm personally really interested in, you know, complicated complex music and I feel like I will do things like that like leave on a complex polyrhythmic metronome type thing and eventually I just feel like I'm sort of doing some weird like psychological manipulation to myself and uh uh you know like I I can't do it around other people. I have to be in headphones, but uh I don't know, that's 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 interesting to embody it until it's uh easy. Um yeah because for me this kind of music I think music can carry a lot of things I mean it can carry emotion it can carry complexity of thought mm-hmm. it can carry construct it can carry architecture you know as far as composition it can carry many ideas and philosophies and it can be a lot of things just like you know the visual arts can be representational they can be three dimensional they can be ab- completely abstract they can be monolithic they can be daunting for the mind or for the for the emotion you know for the heart um they can be assaulting they can be very very small and hard to perceive um so music has that same capability and i don't think one is better or you know it's what mm-hmm. the person is looking for for me complexity in itself is is has become less interesting uh as for its sake that's and that's why I love Ben because his stuff is so complex but emotionally very very satisfying and and very moving actually mm-hmm. um and and Ben is such a deeply feeling person that that always gets me you know mm-hmm. he has that sort of sophistication but it's never cold or it's never lonely in in that that's that sad sort of state like you're on your own mm-hmm. <laughs> over here good luck with that Uh so in college uh like the thing that I love to talk about is that I sent him a, an email asking basically can I study with you um because I was hating college for music and uh he basically responded with this email that in the single email was worth more than college itself and um it was very much about like permutations and this kind of like exhaustive way of practicing and um I think I've heard you speak about uh, extended technique or just like sort of like 
uh, creating all these different approaches to like, you know, the shape of your mouth to get like these different sounds. And they are both exhaustive techniques, but it seems like uh, a little different approach. I'm curious, like uh, how you think about just like expanding your palette of extended techniques or just uh, sounds that are available to you. Mm -hmm. Like uh, there was a time when I was working uh, with Bob Ostertag. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Bob. If might be might be a, a great uh, entry into another world of phenomenal thinking and composition and, and um, so Bob Ostertag is a composer living in uh, composer and political activist and and a, a book author um, living in San Francisco and we we were we're still working together occasionally but he was doing a project where he was recording uh, musicians and then recording sounds and free improvisations and then um, and then collecting these sounds and then making compositions out of them and then having them play with those sounds or you know whatever the process at the time was so I spent hours and hours in the studio with Bob recording every which sound I could possibly make and so that led me to uh, transcribing all of these sounds and writing them down and then from then on practicing variations on variations on variations. So if I could make a sound, just a straight tone sound on a middle pitch, can I make it breathier? Can I make it harsher? Can I make it with a fry in it? Can I make it with a vibrato, with with a wobble in it? Like all these parameters that I, I want to be able to manipulate, not because it's a gimmick, not because I can, partially, of course, but also because it can express certain things. And sometimes you have to put the cart before the horse in these, in these things because you discover things that you can do with your voice that you normally wouldn't do. If you, if you, put, you, know, if you put two things together through process, you would not have gotten there sometimes through emotion. Mm -hmm. But then these two elements that you put together have an implica implication of emotion or emotionality within you mm -hmm. or within me, or they don't. <laughs> or the absence of emotionality is exactly what you're looking for. So every sound that comes from your body comes from your body in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I was cataloging all these things and, and sort of keeping journals of sound. And it's really expanded my palette, not necessarily in free improvisation and making more crazy sounds because mm -hmm. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that any day. Anybody can do that really, you know. But in making, combining that sound while I'm singing other stuff. So in Ben's music, some of that goes into the sound that I'm making. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm singing an E or I'm singing an E or mm -hmm. E, 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 those are all manipulations in my pharynx. And as cl the closer you look at those, the more variance you can make, the more you can blend, the more you can stand out, the more you can be softer, harder, more feeling, more me mechanical, whatever you, you want to be, it gives you more choices and it gives you a, a world uh, that is normally not accessible to you when you're singing normally because what's uh, what's asked of the jazz singer and quotation marks for the mm -hmm. podcast <laughs> um, is to be yourself 
and as if that's one thing like right. we're one thing all the time like no i refuse i refuse to be one thing all the time mm -hmm. um so therefore i want to have as many things available as i can can you tell i'm a gemini <laughs> uh, so is ben by the way interesting i i'm not that hip to the astrological stuff uh me neither the... but it applies to my sign so <laughs> that's all i care about me 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 uh so in terms of exhaustiveness also like uh, i feel like you have a second line of uh you know attack which is like using loopers and using like ways to extend your voice that aren't sort of built into your physiology um how, how do you think about that differently from the sort of built-in physiology approach um yeah i think of my loops uh as an extension uh, orchestrational extension of what i would like to be able to do <laughs> if I could physically. Um, I never think or I rarely ever think of loops as replacing anything else or anybody else. And I think that's quite different from what these things are built for, which is to accompany yourself. So you sing the bass line first, or you, you know, start with the rhythm and then you sing the bass line and then you sing the horn parts mm -hmm. and then you put the melody on top or whatever, whatever order you want to do. I don't think of that of those of my rig like that at all mm -hmm. i think of it as more voices more of myself in some kind of a constellation of color clouds of sound or a very painterly very like swashes of sound um but they're all human they're all from me um rarely do i want to rarely do i emanate i would say never emanate another instrument i would never imitate a trumpet or you know pretend to and then it repeats and repeats and repeats and the thing that's that's really uh annoying about loopers is is what they're made for which is the repetition and the constant hearing the same thing exactly the same way mm -hmm. is is kind of what bores me about them. So I try to figure out a way that's sort of a Mobius strip that you, mm. you can't hear the beginning, but it just moves on to something else perhaps. Um, I recorded a solo album in 2010, I think. It was called um, Ante Room. Or was it 2005? 2005. God, it's a while ago now. Um, and I didn't use my electronics at all. I, I only used a long uh, reverb slash delay kind of thing mm -hmm. um but there was no loop there's no loop in it um and so all the layers are stacked i did not want this loop feeling i wanted it to be static i wanted for the listener to feel like you're looking at a, a vocal sculpture because everything is moving especially in the beginning very very slowly at glacier pace and you have chords that bleed into another chord um and these weird tonalities and then you have this thing that starts spinning a little bit and different voices there's never ever a melody in this it's always long tones or two tones maybe two or three tones but it's all long tones um that get shorter and shorter and then the last is a it's like a 40 minute 45 minute piece and then there's a four minute piece at the end that's that has a melody in it um so the the the, the biggest part of it was really this idea of never-ending voice like the voices keeps going keeps going keeps going keeps going and for me that sort of extends also to the electronics mm -hmm. because the 
there's a certain sense of complacency when you when you listen to looped music and we're getting so used to it and I'm getting so used to it and it's so impressive you know when somebody is stacking and is doing all these intricate harmonies and it's it's super impressive and it takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice um, but ultimately my heart always sinks a little bit when it comes to the you know 107th repeat right. um, so I'm trying to do, use it sparingly and use it sort of like a rolling glacier mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it comes and before you realize it oh something has changed yeah i feel like i've heard you do things with the looper where like you know you drop that eighth eighth note and it you know sort of like has that seven overlapping and it like you know has yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly so the, the trick there's a lot of trickery there's a lot of how can i make this last in the person's ear mm -hmm. um and I've done a lot of minimal music and minimal music is completely different from looped music, mm -hmm. even though they could sound the same. But the, the, the wonderful thing about performing minimal music is the repetition and the humanity of it, that you, when you repeat something, that it's not the slight change, you might be trained to do it exactly the same, but the endurance of it mm -hmm. is sort of what, what is exciting about it. And you just, the endurance here is you just unplug it. That's all. But it could go on for a hundred years, and it could not go on for a hundred years with a human. They mm -hmm. have to drink. They have to go to the bathroom. They have to do something. They have to sleep. Um, and so the sort of that mechanical thing is what we are getting all too used to. <laughs> We're getting all too used to it. Uh, this makes me uh, think of two sort of sub questions. Uh, first of all, are you familiar with the music of Mick Barr, the guitarist? Yes, Nick Bard. No. Mick Barr. Um, Mick he's Barr, like a no, I don't. long hair sort of metal guitarist. Um, it, interesting. He, he's just very endurance based. And uh, that's what made me think of. And he's based in New York. So yeah. but, um, the other question is uh, basically just like, you know, with all this repetition, there's sort of like a potential like trancey, like uh, mm -hmm. head state. I'm curious if you have a any sort of like meditation practice or if you do anything in that sort of domain. Uh, of whatever um, flavor my new meditation practice is sewing <laughs> okay <laughs> i just learned how to sew my friend henry hay gave me a sewing machine and i'm hooked it's my meditation that once that sound starts it doesn't even matter if i sew well i just yeah mm -hmm. that's how i start my day right now i don't have a meditation technique uh practice right now i used to and i sometimes get into it but no, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I do. No. <laughs> That's fine. Um, interesting. Okay. Um, let's see here. So uh, I wanted to go through some singers uh, and get your sort of like take on them or just like what they mean to you. We've already sort of gone through some of them. Um, but I was going to ask about Bjork. Uh, I just love the album Medulla. But like, I feel like almost the focus here is like on Rozel and Tanya Tagak and uh are, the, are those singers that are interesting to you or uh, have any sort of influence for you or? Uh... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bjork, um, I've, I've, I know Bjork a little bit. Um, I went to her Thanksgiving a couple of years ago with oh, wow. Meredith Monk, who is um, one of Bjork's you know, biggest heroes. And she used to come uh, to Meredith's concerts and then we would hang out afterwards. Nice. Uh, yeah, Bjork is incredibly uh, inspiring. It's actually, Ben played me, I think, Post or something, an early album of Bjork. I remember coming over to his house and he had this cover. I'm like, oh, I've seen this in, at, at, at Tower Records or something. He's like, yeah, this is great. 
So he was actually the first one that played Bjork for me. Um, because I, I was very snooty about pop music and I mm-hmm. barely listened to pop music when I was younger. <clears throat> uh, yeah, Bjork is fantastic. Medulla is interesting because um, that album was based or it was highly inspired by Merida's uh, work and her vocal mm-hmm. ensemble. Um, and so she would, uh, she said in a lot of interviews that that was the, the, her main inspiration for that album. However, it's interesting that the album is was made in overdubs and, and sending, you know, things around the world. <clears throat> Whereas Meredith would never do that. Like she mm-hmm. never <laughs> overdubs. Like it's always about the ensemble and always about the process within the ensemble, which, which led me to listen differently uh, to that album because it does have this fragmentation of this person is over here in this physical and emotional space and this person is over there and that works together obviously but in Meredith's work there's sort of a circle around everything there's sort of a community mm-hmm. and to think of music making as a community is quite different than I'm sending it to this person because they can do this and that person because they can do that mm-hmm. um, and so I think there's there therein lies the the revelation about something I mean, one of my favorite albums of Bjork's is Vespertine, no mm-hmm. question. I mean, absolutely. that album it, it is still to this day is absolutely genius, brilliant, uh, compositionally and orchestrationally and in every which way. I think it's it's one of those desert island discs. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite uh, song off the record? Aurora, got a spark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sucker for cocoon myself. Um, yeah, I mean every song on it. Everyone's like, "Oh, wait, this song, this song again." Oh yes, <laughs> great. Uh, so uh, with like Tanya Tagak and Rozelle and uh, these sort of like out there singers, uh, you, are those people that you follow or like? Uh, you know, they're sort of like weird extended technique beatboxing, throat singing. Uh, I don't know. I just wanted to see where your mind. Yeah, goes it's not. I mean, I, if, when I hear them, I'm completely blown away, and I'm mm-hmm. like, "Holy!" guacamole this is unbelievable um but it's not something i would listen to on a record mm-hmm. it really for me requires the live space and the live the concert moment and the cel- celebration and the sort of watching it as part of the ritual to mm-hmm. me um hearing it on record is i know it's you know they're doing it and all that but it's not <laughs> as exciting to me gotcha um Something that Ben and I also share is a, a love of like extreme metal and death metal and all this. And um, I'm I'm curious how uh, interested you are in that world of like guttural sounds and uh, all the strange things that they get into. Mm, yeah, I mean it's only because of Ben that I've even would consider listening to it, um, and I've gotten very much into it. You know, okay. I, I mean the, the early Meshuggah stuff has made it you know you, you can listen to something once or twice or three times and it makes a huge impact on you mm-hmm. it's like seeing something like a, i don't want to say a, a train wreck a car crash or something <laughs> but seeing something once can impact you can can impact you in a, in a great way and I, that that i would say that for a lot of the metal i don't i don't need to listen to it constantly actually ben took a car ride recently and he was playing this thing and after like three tracks he said but you have to turn this off i cannot listen to this anymore it's it's giving me not a headache but it's my whole 
body tensions tightens up and um he understood you know it's not for everyone to really listen to mm-hmm. sit to it listen to it but yeah i can't sometimes sometimes mm-hmm. i'm in the mood and I'm, i do it but uh, from like the standpoint of extended techniques uh or, oh, like, it's, yeah i mean there's you know if you sting uh death metal with a proper technique then yes you you can you can avoid injury but it also and i do like this is this morbid like i don't give a fuck what my voice is going right. to be like tomorrow yeah it's great you know it's like getting a tattoo of spongebob scrap hands on your forehead <laughs> Like, yeah, you might like this might be cool today, but mm-hmm. in 20 years, you might not want that there anymore. So for me, it's glad somebody's doing it. So I don't have mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, I, I figured that maybe the safety element might uh, creep in for you. Uh, and it makes me think of the band Pig Destroyer. And like, there's this video of the singer uh, continuing to sing after the mic has broken and he's singing over the rest of the band and, and or singing is a, you know, the wrong word for it, but it's just like that that's going to damage you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the appeal. This like self-destruction uh, mm-hmm. thing is to me is very disturbing actually at the end of the day, it's kind of fun when you're in the moment and like, how cool is that? But not really, um, really you need to destroy your instrument and not be able to do anything. Maybe you do. I just highly recommend uh, watching uh, The Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal, it's called. Is that like a documentary? The movie where this guy, he's a metal drummer, and he gets, uh, it's a it's an Oscar-nominated movie right now. It's, it's a beautiful movie about this man, who, this young man who uh, gets deaf. He has his hearing loss. He loses his hearing from, you know, this loud, pounding of the drums night after night after night and how he deals with being deaf um so the loss is is real it's very cool when you're young you mm-hmm. know to do that kind of stuff but how long can you do that for mm-hmm. um and that is a concern like you have to you know i mean ben has had his his bouts with tinnitus i know that other you know because of just it could be one feedback at a gig and you're you're just everything is is changing Mm -hmm. um so yeah there are there are ways there's a vocal teacher in new york melissa cross who teaches uh that kind of uh uh, singing which is mostly done through a vocal fry uh uh, uh, and close miking um to me it's a a little bit monochromatic Mm -hmm. uh from my taste uh, as far as now do this only <laughs> mm-hmm. all day long, but oh. it's incredible. It's incredible. And the rhythmic precision and the rhythmic complexity that this music has to offer is mind boggling. When you were cataloging all these different sort of uh, sounds and techniques, uh, did you ever have anything in that sort of domain? Of course. Like... This Here's the, the dirty truth. Once you start exploring your instrument, for the most part, we all share the same sort of sound possibilities with your voice some people can do more extreme things than others but at the beginning of each of these roads we can all make that same sound you know i can sing overtones i can do fries i can do this i can do that getting clicking sounds like this every human humanoid has the same vocal folds and they're not that you know male and female vocal folds are not that different from one another physically 
Uh, they're just tiny, a little bit smaller. That's all. Mm -hmm. And the normal eye wouldn't even see that. So we can all make the same sounds. Just because you live somewhere means that you have grown up with a different tradition and different uh, habits and language and all that comes, can influence all that. But if you once you start, you're like, oh, and then you see, you know, somebody else performing like, oh, I found this sound, but in a different way. Um, and this goes for all world music. You know, you find all this world music stuff in your in your voice and you're like, can I use this? You know, is this okay for me to use, even if I found it through another process and I'm not imitating mm -hmm. somebody? So it's, it be becomes this, you know, who owns the sound? <laughs> who, who, who is allowed to make this or that sound? Uh, so y you mentioned Henry Hay a little while ago, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Henry has these, like, absurd political reharmonization videos on YouTube that I'm sure you've seen. Henry you is a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> musician, yeah. Uh, this this makes me think of like a, I guess just like the current world of technology in terms of like voice transcription and like voice deep fakes and like formant modeling and all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, is this something that's interesting to you or that you fiddle with or just kind of like not at all for at, at this okay. point no. Um, that if 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 I was twenty now I would probably be inter inter interested in that and I would be more computer driven. My goal is to get away from this, from the screen more than get into it more further. So I don't, <clears throat> that's why I still work with these, you know, good old loopers. You buy in a store and you just plug them in and you put a cable in it and the microphone goes right into it. It's, I am <laughs> fighting, I'm probably a dinosaur at this point, fighting for the relatability of what I'm doing, which is already far-fetched. But if, if I'm on stage and there's, first of all, there's this, a tray with some stuff on it. Mm -hmm. That's To me, that's better than a laptop. If I see a laptop on stage, my heart just sinks. I just get a softie. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> now I have to look at this Apple logo for the entire concert. Okay, great. That's number one. And secondly, for a person, even if they're, you know, in their early to late hundreds, um, to, to see me push a button, do something, to be physically embodied in the making of this weird sound or that mm -hmm. they might not quite understand what exactly goes on but um they see that something's happening that's different from staring at a laptop screen and typing and checking your email or not you know <laughs> and is and here's the other dirty secret let me just uh, my dishwasher is beeping <clears throat> <clears throat> The other dirty secret is that I found that with Max MSP or whatever these programs are, everything starts to sound the same. And it is, it, it, remember when Photoshop came out, maybe you're too young, in the 90s, and every record cover had the same 12 effects on it. The drop shadow on the font, and the this on the photo, and the little, the, and the stencil here. and the, So once you have these parameters, you want to use them. You know, it, it, so the machine sort of dictates what it sounds like. And they all sound bloopy and click. I don't they, There's enough of that out there. I don't need to be the person that makes it. And then here's, here goes the same thing. Like some people make beautiful music with Max MSP. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And so I don't know that they're making it with that program. That's what's good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I... 
I agree with all that. Um, <laughs> uh, excuse me. Uh, in terms of like uh, sort of odd uh, extended technique singers, uh, are there any other influences that you might uh, direct me towards? Uh, you know, in terms of like the the weirder sort of side of things. Yeah, I can. Um, let me pull up my list of. Uh, I, I've, I've compiled a very long and extensive list, um, and it is. I just, of course, Meredith Monk is you know number one on that list, or is mm -hmm. one of the many number ones. Um, um, let me just put that up. Uh, there it is. Playlist. So uh, one of the great um, male singers, no longer alive, um, is Al Jarreau in, in jazz. And he, in the 70s, started, you know, making sounds and, and maybe, you know, to the point of imitating instruments to, to an extent that opened doors for Bobby McFerrin and many others to follow um, in a, a musical and joyous way that is just, if you go to... Uh, Look to the Rainbow, the double album that Al Jarreau made in the 70s, and listen to Take 5. There's, there's also a great Take 5 um, uh, video on YouTube from the NDR, German uh, Hamburg radio. So it is mind-boggling how freely he combines text and sounds and... Uh, anyway... Uh, just, but um, one of the uh, more out there singers is Demetrius Stratos, hmm. who nice. is uh, also no longer alive, um, was an Italian singer with Greek origin. And Demetrius Stratos made um, records only with his voice that I, I think nobody could possibly ever do because he had these weird capabilities to make sounds that I don't even know how, you know, some of it is even sounds overdubbed, but it's not. And mm -hmm. there are live concerts and there's videos of him. He was this rare animal that could make these unbelievably interesting, weird sounds. So, so Demetrius Stratos, I would say, um, Kathy Barbarian is a, is a good, um, Jaap Blanc, of course, from the, from the Netherlands is doing a lot of sound and performance art and, and Dada kind of performance stuff. Um, Jay Clayton, also uh, worked with Steve Reich, one of the uh, sort of sonic explorers. There's Ursula Dutziak, Bobby McFerrin, of course, more in the jazz world. There's Kurt Schwitters. I mean, he's the, we have to give kudos to Kurt Schwitters uh, with his Orsonata from the you know 20s, uh, 1920s. Um, Shelley Hirsch, amazing improviser. He's worked with Zorn and the Circle. Uh, brilliant brilliant performer and also embodied you know sound maker with storytelling capabilities um you have a former student of mine in uh, la odea nini okay. i don't know if you've heard of her she's no. wonderful and she makes the wildest craziest sounds and she's a, a improviser and sort of spiritually uh, influenced by meditation and all, just a wonderful wonderful improviser um, so Odea Nini, I can, I can give a shout out to in LA. There's lots of people doing wild and crazy work, um, these days. Well, none of those are so, familiar names to me. So yeah. I have a lot of listening ahead. 
Yeah, there's lots. I mean, I have a list that's like 50 names long. Um, it, you said that the number one name on there is Meredith Monk, and I wanted to sort of like just get uh, any sort of you know insider lessons or like uh, insider information, interesting inspirational stories or whatever. Anything that you want to share? Because um, I know that you've been working with her for ages, and um, yeah. you know, she's you know amazing. So. I mean, what I've said about the process uh, of building a community and building music on the performer extends to what Ben and I are doing with each other. It's really we're creating uh, parts for each other that nobody could play, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could think of a few people that could, you know, sing my parts, but it's, it's kind of bespoke music making. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like I'm making something highly complex, but it's only for you. Um, and that's exciting. It's sort of watching something very rare and very specialized. Um, you can't sing along to any of it. Um, so Meredith's sort of uh, aesthetic and her process is really what changed uh, my thinking about how to make music because my idea of composing and, and creating music was always, I'm creating this music and then I can, this is the jazz mentality, this person could play bass or this person could play guitar or this, it doesn't matter because the music is so great and I'm so great. Um, that's not the case for most of what I do because what I write is very strange and weird. And then the instrumentalists take it 10 steps further than mm -hmm. the, the stuff I wrote. So then the final result is so meshed up with the initial idea of what I had or some sketch that I had and then they play something better than what I had or different and so then I'm left with this hybrid of what I wrote and what they put into it and nobody can really replace that I can I can tell per, a person to listen to what he's playing but that that's not fair either so I'm in this weird place of yeah making people irreplaceable I'm actually having this very problem right now because I'm I'm offered a gig in San Francisco for uh, my Elegy project, my Elegy record for, uh, that I recorded with Ben and Ben can't do the date. And I'm like, well, is this mm -hmm. going to fall this gig with Ben not being able? So I'm waiting for Ben to, he always comes around. Man, <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Um the sort of like a non-replaceable aspect is interesting um and i'm, I'm sort of curious uh, something that i've been pondering um you know these days we we have this obsession with like putting valuation on art just based on the final product i'm wondering do you think that if somebody puts in the time that it's predictable that they will sort of reach a point of critical sort of like escape velocity and be uh amazing artists or do you think that uh, it requires something besides just the dedication of time. But what what is your what is your goal uh, goalpost here? Like, what is critical acclaim or financial success or everybody knows your name or just like uh, there's something that's like uh, you can tell is special uh, on sort of an embodied level of just like uh, something has accumulated and become synergistic here. Yeah, but some people fall through the cracks too. I know a few composers and a few really, really great players that for whatever reason, whether it's their personality or whether they moved to Ohio because their wife had a job there, mm -hmm. they don't have that. They didn't get what they should, I think, should 
get or deserve and how, how they make peace with it is another story. I think it's really unpredictable. Mm. I've seen a lot of talents come and go and I've seen a lot of semi-talents make it and then not make it or it's a bit of a chaos. If you maintain a sense of joy with what you're doing and a, a sense of satisfaction without any attachment to this should happen, this has to happen, then you're good. I think then it will happen. It's weird, but, mm -hmm. but if you're attaching yourself to, oh, I got to be on the downbeats best list, or why am I not on the downbeats best list, or why am I not getting this grant, or why am I not on TV, or why aren't people buying my record? What This like attachment to the outcome. Let's not kid ourselves. What I do is very, 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 for a very small audience. Mm -hmm. And when people ask me now, what do I do? I say, or what kind of music do I do? I say, I make music that you probably won't like, which puts them off the hook, off the hook right away. And they're like, no, 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 I'm sure I like it. Mm -hmm. And then they want to like it. And I could tell it for the most part, it's okay. It's okay. I know that what I do is not for everybody. And just because I sing and because I sing quotation marks, jazz, or, you know, mm -hmm. where would you file that? And then people, oh, you mean like Michael Bublé? No, not like Michael Bublé. Mm -hmm. um, like what? Like Bobby McFerrin? Yeah, not quite, but that's closer. But it's also not covering it. I, I guarantee you, you won't like it. You won't <laughs> like it as much as you think you will. And that's okay. <laughs> and the people who do, they like it a lot. And that's that's plenty. Is this your like a sleight of hand <laughs> to just yeah, make sure this? <laughs> um it, the reason i ask about this like sort of putting in the work thing is like i feel like nowadays there's this uh at least like seeing like the younger workforce that uh is you know coming up these days uh like i think they like to tell these stories about why you should like something and like i i don't believe that as many people in the music world in particular are putting in the time uh you know like i think that there's probably at least, maybe this is just la but uh i think that there are a lot of people telling you about why you should like their thing without necessarily putting in the time. And uh, I think the opposite is true. Oh, really? I think we are creating these skill bots that are just mind blowing. Mm, uh, the okay. musicians in New York are putting in the time or, or they're just better than everybody <laughs> else by default. I mean, there's so much skill. There's, there's a skill pandemic. Everybody is so fucking skilled. It's unbelievable. And it's amazing. Um, and the, the thing that I'm missing is mystery mm. and, uh, risk taking to a certain degree, okay. sort of make, getting your hands dirty and being a little bit more daring in a way with your, with, with the outcome, because the idea of being liked or being admired or being accepted amongst each other is of course heightened through, uh, the internet and through, you know, social media and all that stuff. I don't feel like what you said is true at all in New York. Okay. I think it was extremely good. Like, there was a time like t t 10, 15 years ago where I would agree. Mm -hmm. Now it's not true anymore. The young people can all play their butts off. They're great and they're emotionally beautiful. And I'm, blown, I'm being blown away every day. It's really it's incredible what's out there. Maybe Los Angeles is just a little bit higher or something. Um, <laughs> I love like... LA. I think you have great, you have, I, I, I would love to move to LA. I think LA is the bee's knees. 
so maybe one day um you should uh make the jump uh yeah uh well, uh, the last uh, question I'll ask is just if you have anything uh, that you're working on right now that you can tell us about or uh, anything that's up and coming to be excited about. Well, what's, what, what I'm excited about is what just happened, which is a, a CD release with the Brass Quartet, the West release, mm -hmm. um, which I uh, sort of collaborated, not sort of, which I collaborated with. Um, and we collaborated on a, a song cycle um, we called the record This Land, but initially it was called Songs of uh, a Refuge and Resistance mm -hmm. um, because they were in response to Trump getting into office and all this. So the idea was to make a, a, a not a protest record, a refuge and protest record mm -hmm. that actually is really, really beautiful and seductive rather than you must know what we think about politics. You, right. Not that kind of, you know, record, obviously, and, and a very uh, yeah, seductive and, and irresistible <laughs> kind of music about resistance, mm -hmm. about really like-minded uh, people doing something in a time where you just feel like, okay, this is, this is just the biggest shit show of all time and what is going on and how can we, how can we do something aside from, and I don't believe this at all. Like, I don't believe that just because you're an artist, you're political. It's, it's, that's just all self-serving to me. Mm -hmm. um, being, an, being, being a musician or being an artist, which I try not to call myself an artist because I think that it's absolutely pretentious, but um, <laughs> doing what you do musically um, is often very self-centered and very self-serving in the world. Mm -hmm. Let's just face it, you know. And yes, you're making the world a better place because people listen to whatever. At the end of the day, you know, it serves you and you're fulfilling your dream. You're not handing out food at the food bank or you're, you know, you're not sewing clothes for people or whatever. Um, so let's just be all honest about this um, and just say, yeah, I'm, you know, some people really take something with it with them but so we were trying to do something a little bit more you know dealing with the subject at hand like where are we and let's respond to this mm -hmm. not just be ignorant and just keep doing our thing and that's our message um so yeah and so it's i mean that's very much like not like persuasive pol political music it's just like more like is the goal to more inspire or empower or just uh... is to uh, preach the choir actually to say to the choir be strong. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because, uh, you know, our audience is not going to be QAnon Trump voters. No <laughs> way. No way are they going to listen to this record. And if they would, they would hate it. Mm -hmm. So, but sometimes it's important to know that we are hearing each other, that we see each other, that we support each other, even in this, uh, you know, in this, in this time. And for us to take, uh, you know, union worker songs or set poetry of uh, refugees to music elevates that discussion to a place uh, of music. And I think that and makes it beautiful, makes the struggle beautiful and something that we unite with each other. Awesome. Well, I, I've listened to some of the record and I, the, these harmonies that are coming out are very... Uh... I don't know what the word is, but uh, I, I like them a lot. And these like uh, sort of 
I feel like if there's like a sort of major 70 like clustery thing that's very yeah, nice that's a very and rich Amer and Americana uh, a Copelandy kind of you mm -hmm. know uh, kind of feel to that yeah absolutely um, and that's 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 good because it is called this land it is about where we are in America and where we all stand as you know there's a, a trans person in the band there's a, a, a gay guy there's uh, Indian American, so there's different, you know, creeds and different sort of waves of of investments in this that are um, that are part of this project. It's it's nice. It's awesome. nice to feel that. I most mostly want to say that the Westerlies, like Ben Monder, have the sound that it's like you, you just can't, like you just cannot. <laughs> Your heart just goes, oh my god, what? So that was again what you know drew me to them and still draws me to the rest release is the impeccable idea of sound mm -hmm. and this goes also back to what i was saying about uh exploring your sound just because you're exploring a sound doesn't mean that everything that you do has to be extreme actually it it sort of solidifies the core more than anything mm. and i i i feel that uh, the rest release have done all that homework they can make every crazy sound in the book and they make every crazy sound with each other and they make the most beautiful, most heartfelt, it's like a rock band. Like they work together so closely um, that you just, you just, you just can't resist. It's just like, okay, I give up. Here I go, here come the waterworks. Um, so that's what, I, what I'm looking for. Um, and that's what I'm attracted to, you know, amidst all the other, you know, complexity and, and Mm -hmm. awesome stuff and stuff cool um well uh, everybody should check out that record uh anything else that you want to mention before we sign off not no just follow me on instagram cool. <laughs> well awesome theo blackman thanks so much for sharing your time with me it's been a lot of fun talking with you thank you for having me i really appreciate that yeah all right well uh, be well bye Chen. i'll talk to you in the future